Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. The Late Lunch with Blackstone Motors, Drahada Dundalk and Cavan. Our service departments are open with all HSC and government guidelines in place to keep you and our staff safe. Sales are click and deliver only through our website, blackstonemotors.ie. Stay safe from Blackstone Motors. Yeah, money, 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 indeed. And do you recognise that little clip of the tune there we've just played on Late Lunch to open the show today? If you are an Apprentice fan, you will know that song because it was the theme to the US version of The Apprentice hosted by none other than Mr. Donald Trump, who's just departed the White House in the last half hour or so at the end of his presidency. And we will be talking about that man and the inauguration of Joe Biden uh, later on in the show this afternoon. Welcome to Late Lunch, and it is money to start. You might recall earlier in the week I mentioned that uh, the central bank issued a, a press release to say that there were 350 million euro in old Irish punts still remaining unaccounted for. And the breakdown of that was 224 million in notes and 123 million in coins. I did mention it on Monday, but I'm curious about it. And the man who's going to satisfy your and my curiosity is on the line. He's Paul Malumby, Director of Currency and Facilities Management at the Central Bank. Good afternoon, Paul. Good afternoon, Jerry. Thank you for joining me on the show. Can I say first... That is a lot of money outstanding. Is it still coming in, even in a trickle? Yes, indeed it is, Jerry. And it's great, great to speak with you. Uh, the Central Bank of Ireland provides a service for all members of the public that if they have uh, old Irish pound notes or coins, as you said there, um, we we provide a, a service to exchange that for euros. And um, last year to two two twenty. Um, 281,000 of euro uh, value was exchanged in uh, old Irish pound notes and 117,000 euro uh, of old Irish coins were exchanged. Uh, Altogether, about a a thousand sort of transactions took place uh, whereby we provided this service, as I say, to members of the public. Yes. And and Paul, can I ask you this, Paul? 
Can I ask you this, Paul? Because this this is why I'm so curious. You know, you receive it in. Do you have any idea or do you find out where it's been or are there any particular reasons it comes to light? Uh, yes, Jerry, because um, people typically, you know, provide uh, a reason as to why they have, have the notes or how they've come into their possession to us. So we're fortunate to be able to collect some some of that data. And it's all quite anecdotal. Um, typically, to be honest, it's associated with uh, older people. Uh, regrettably, maybe some of them passing on uh, where their estate is being managed, where maybe their houses are being searched. It's certainly old houses, old attics, clearing out uh, furniture, uh, handbags, um, you can imagine, uh, we certainly had notes provided to us where they've been found in the attic, where they've been pro- found in old suitcases. We had a strange one, I told the story, where during um, Storm Ophelia a number of years back, uh, a tree was knocked down and the uh, owners of the land in in the roots of the tree found a package and in that package were um, old Irish pound notes, remarkably in good condition. Um, sometimes we get the notes and they're in very poor condition and it's not possible for us to verify or authenticate that they uh, merit uh, exchange. But by and large, uh, the notes are presented to us in, in very good condition. They've clearly been kept, you know, in, in, in the right environment. Um, rodents haven't got at them or they haven't got damp or, or fallen apart. So they're kept in cases, as I say, handbags, attics, down the back mm. of couches, God knows where. There's as yes. many stories as there are applications, Jerry. <laughs> I'm sure there are. That one about the tree is fantastic. But I'd say it's a reflection as well of, uh, as you said, people of an age. And a lot of people of an age didn't have uh, tremendous faith. And I'm not saying this in any disingenuous way to yourself or bankers in institutions mm. minding their money. So they minded mm. it themselves and, and squirreled it away in different ways. I'm sure there's a lot of money, like that tree incident or money buried in the ground that will never come to light, that people have passed on and never given the information to anybody? Possibly. And I think it's important to, to set it in context. And, and you are right. There's 350 million euro of old Irish notes and coin that have not been exchanged for euro value. But I think we need to set that in context. That really is, you know, significantly less than 10% of the amount of Irish pound notes that were in circulation at the time of the euro exchange What's that, 19 years ago, I think now at this, at this stage, nearly 20 yeah. years ago. So uh, a significant, a very significant amount of the old Irish notes and coin have been exchanged. Yeah, it's important uh, to say that. that the other thing is, Paul, um, I had uh, listeners on to me the other day when I mentioned this, and they even uh, WhatsApped me in photographs of uh, the old notes and a number of them that uh, several people have had, and others messaged me to say, yeah, we still have some of this money. For anybody who has, you know, people hold on to individual notes to have them as uh, keepsakes and pass them on in their families. Mm. But if anyone has a number of notes and hasn't done anything about it yet, is it complicated? I know your public office is closed at the moment, but is it still possible to do the deal with you to exchange for euro? Yes, and Jerry, thank you for giving me the opportunity to ex- explain very briefly to uh, your listeners and members of the public. So the Central Bank of Ireland is committed to continuing this service 
And you are right, as a consequence of the uh, national measures addressed with the pandemic, our front office is closed, which is in North Walkey County uh, in Dublin City. Um, however, we provide a postal service and indeed our partners, the retail banks, who partner with us for the distribution of cash, um, also are willing to uh, support their c- customers. So if you visit the Central Bank of Ireland website, um, there's a, a, a page is there which explain the process. And most importantly, there's a form to uh, fill out. So if a member uh, of your listenership or a member of the public has a, either one or any number of Irish pound notes or, or coin, if they want to pop them in an envelope uh, with the uh, form downloaded from the Central Bank of Ireland um, web, web website, complete the form, which effectively gives your bank account details and the number of denominations of each um, uh, element of, of the exchange. And if you bring that into uh, our partners, Allied Irish Banks, Bank of Ireland, our Ulster Bank, or indeed, I'd, if you want to use Post, I'd recommend Registered Post. Um, we'll receive that here in the Central Bank of Ireland in our currency centre. We'll process it, we'll authenticate it and, and validate it, uh, and we will return the euro value to your bank account. That's and, really and good that, to that, hear. That service is available to everybody. Well done. So that is available and you can do that in your local bank uh, today or tomorrow or any day you wish. What about, I'm old enough to remember decimalisation. I'm getting frightened now when I think about that February 71 and the subsequent changes, of course, that happened to the change to the punt and then on to the euro. What about real old money? You know, those old pounds prior to the Irish punt times, are they gone by the wayside? Well, our service includes them. So we're okay. very happy to provide them. The exchange rate between an Irish pound note and a euro is fixed. At uh, So for every Irish pound, you'll get one euro 27, irrespective right. of how old the bank's note is. Right. Um, and and that, that service, and, and what you're referring to, uh, technically we'd know them as Series A, Series B, Series Cs. Again, uh, some people are very interested in this. We We have images and the history of them. Is is on the central bank web website, and, and the most recent notes um, we 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 call them Series C. People might might remember them. I think it was Captain Macaulay might have been on one one of the mm. notes. Um, I think Queen May was on, on the Irish on the on the one pound note, and uh, Jonathan Swift was on on, on the ten pound. Um, there is a really good video if people are are interested in them. The Central Bank of Ireland produced a video. Um, with the uh, artist who developed those notes um, and, the, and the history of them, it, it, it's available on the Central Bank website. Uh, it, it's really interesting in terms of its connection both with Irish history and the history of um, the, the evolution of the punt and the, you know, the artistic designs within it. Um, and I would say if anybody's interested in that material, they're very welcome uh, to visit our website or our YouTube channel and they'll get the video that uh, Robert Bala, as I said, the artist, helped us uh, make, uh, Jerry, and some of your people might be interested in yes. that. 
Yeah, and it it, it was uh, broadcast first in, in conjunction with Culture Night last year, 2020, I have to say. It is very interesting, and I remember looking at it at the time, and I would recommend it. There's a lovely tutorial there and very interesting historically. If in the context of currency in, in general, Paul, uh, you know, notes that become uh, well-worn uh, and, uh, you know, businesses obviously take in notes like that, I, I take it you have a, a right as a business to refuse a poor quality note, do you? Well, um, you certainly have the right as, as a business to refuse a note that you think may not be authentic or valid. Uh, and, um, you know, I think if, if a, it's, it's unlikely an authentic or a valid uh, euro note would have achieved a level of deterioration that it would consider it unacceptable. The Central mm-hmm. Bank of Ireland uh, works, as I say, with our partner banks in terms of keeping um, the money uh, in circulation to make sure that um, those uh, companies that fill ATMs, that uh, uh, provide cash to retailers, that there are sufficient stocks and quantities available uh, to the uh, national cash cycle. So uh, when we, uh, in that process, come across poor quality notes, we, we extract them, we take them out and we destroy them. So I would suggest that I don't think there are notes in circulation of such poor quality, but if in doubt, Bring it to your bank. Uh, they're professional cash handlers. They'll be well able to authenticate it. Alternatively, there's a very simple check that members of the public can do. And, and, and we call that feel, look and tilt. And if you feel the bank note, it should feel crisp and firm. And there's a series of short raised lines um, that can be felt on, on the uh, side or the edges of the bank note. And if you look at the bank note up against the light, uh, you'll see the watermark, you'll see the security thread um, going through it. Uh, and um, for larger notes, the, the, the 20 euro, etc., up against it, there's a little window at the top of the note um, near the hologram. And when you hold that up, um, you'll be able to see the portrait of uh, Europa, which is the uh, basis of, of the European title. And then finally, the third test is tilt. And if you tilt the banknote, there's a silvery strip uh, that reveals the portrait of Europa, the same one, or the emerald number at the bottom left-hand corner gives the effect of the light moving through it. So a simple mm. test of feel, look, and tilt. Uh, and um, if, if the banknote passes those three simple tests, well, then I'd be very confident you have an authentic banknote in your hands. Are counterfeits a problem? Are they a big problem in Ireland? You know, there was a time there you go in and uh, there was an infra, was it a, a, an ultraviolet light or something a, a retailer would use to check your notes of that. Is, is it still a big issue, people trying to put counterfeits into circulation? Great, great question, Jerry. So I wouldn't want anybody to be complacent uh, about um, counterfeit banknotes. But you know, in, in the context of the scale of, of the euro banknotes, um, they are extremely secure uh, and they are recognised as having a very, very low level of counterfeit. There are, um, the, believe it or not, the value of the euro banknotes in circulation is 1.4 trillion euro. There's, you know, there's 250 billion banknotes have been issued across the 19 um, countries that make up the, European, the euro system. So it's a very significant scale of banknote. It's a very credible banknote. And the level of 
counterfeit banknotes identified in that scale is extremely small. It's less than less than 1%. In fact, it's less than 0.01%. It's less than 0.01%. It's about three decimal points to the right, or three points to the right of the decimal point, 0.0003%. So it's very, very small in context of the scale I talk about. But I wouldn't want anybody to be complacent. And I'd like everybody to check continuously that simple te- test I gave of feel, look and tilt. If you're in any way doubtful of the euro in, 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 in your hand, that's a simple test. But I think by and large, to a very significant scale, members of the public can be confident that uh, there are relatively few counterfeits uh, in, in circulation. I, Fantastic. I, I think that, that explains it. Oh, it does. It does. You've explained it very well indeed. Paul, I'm going to leave it there today. We will be talking, I'm sure, again. Thank you so much for those clarifications. And if you have the old money, get it into the central bank. Thank you for joining me, Paul. Pleasure to talk to you, Jerry. Thank you. Take care of yourself. Bye bye. That's Paul Malumbi there, Director of Currency and Facilities at the Central Bank News. Uh, you probably heard already, have you? I just picked up on it a while ago there. No St. Patrick's Day parades, folks, this year. They're gone again for a second year. My God, there's going to be some parade, isn't there, in 2022 with all the pent-up, uh, you know, energy and creativity that we have as Irish people for the parades. You're with Late Lunch on LMFM Radio. Back in a moment. Joe Biden is attending Mass before his inauguration and County Louth will be represented at that Mass because Patricia Tracy, the wonderful violinist, is playing the Mass. He was requested to do so by Joe Biden. And she's playing... A Stradivarius violin. There were only 1,100 of them ever made in the world. 600 believed to be in existence, but there's only 244 of them accounted for. And listen to this. One of them, a Messiah Stradivarius, is valued at $200 million. Now, Bynan Company are a renowned company in America, and they have one of them for sale. And they have given the Stradivari violin to Patricia to play shortly at Joe's Mass. Here is Joe Bine from Bine and Company explaining the violin and then we'll hear Patricia play. Hi, this is Joe Bine with Bine and Company and I'm standing in historic Old St. Patrick's Church where we are thrilled to be participating in the inauguration of President-elect Joseph Biden. I'm here with my good friend, celebrated Irish violinist Patricia Tracy, who's been personally invited by the president-elect to play at his inauguration mass. Bynum Company is thrilled to be able to provide a Stradivari violin for this incredible moment in history. Antonio Stradivari and his two sons produced the most famous and highly coveted stringed instruments in the world. There are only about 500 of these violins left, a significant number of which exist in permanent collections. This violin is almost 315 years old and is currently for sale at Bynum Company for only the second time in the last 63 years. Whoever acquires the Stradivari violin next will be forever linked to this incredible moment in time. Let's have a listen.
isn't that just simply beautiful? Yes, it's our own Cathy Loud's Patricia Tracy playing the Stradivari there, and she'll play it soon at Mass for Joe Biden ahead of his inauguration as president. Coming up after two, mother and baby home solicitor Deirdre Moran with us to give us the ins and outs of what happens from here. But heading to news and weather at two, it's music from the USA all the way on late lunch today. It's Alicia Keys and Empire State of Mind. Don't forget you can listen to live commentary of many of the Premier League matches which take place on Saturdays on the LMFM app or by clicking clicking onto the uh, Listen tab on LMFM's website. The fourth round of the FA Cup is on this week, so there's only one game in the Premier League, but we have it. Aston Villa take on Newcastle at 8 o'clock. So get closer to the action with Premier League Live with Now TV. Stream live Premier League action with a Now TV Sports or Sports Extra Pass. It's all there for you. Now, we have uh, been touching on the uh, mother and baby home uh, story since uh, the report issued last week, talking to a number of people who either had children there or were born in the homes. Today, we're taking a slightly different tack, but a very important one. If you are somebody who is affected uh, or was part of that story in the past, I'm delighted to welcome back to Late Lunch from Talent Solicitors, Deirdre Moran. Good afternoon, Deirdre. Good afternoon, Jerry, and I have two for the price of one for you today because I have Orla Shevlin, our litigation solicitor, with me also to help uh, with this uh, talk today. Okay, great stuff. So, look, can I begin by asking you just to go back to the commission? Why was the commission established in the first place? Okay, the Mother and Baby Commission was set up back in 2015 and it was in the wake of the scandal that broke as a result of newspaper articles written by a local historian who was called Catherine Corliss. Now, she uncovered the fact that 796 children died at the bomb-secure mother and baby home in Tuman County, Galway, and that there were no burial records. Horrendous when you really uh, try to get your head around that. What was the remit of the commission? Well, the remit of the commission was to investigate a number of uh, mother and baby homes and county homes over a period running from 1922 up until 1998, which is not that long ago. It examined the entry and exit arrangements at these homes, the living conditions, post-mortems, burials, vaccine trials, and whether or not residents in these homes were treated differently on grounds such as race, disability or religion. Now, there are, what, 15 homes uh, investigated as part of this one, but there are other homes as well, and we've had listeners in touch with us to say, well, I wasn't in one of those 15. How do people establish, you know, where the homes were and what does somebody do who's outside of those? Well, first of all, Jerry, it, the list of homes are, is going to be put up on our website so your listeners can uh, access that list and they will then be able to see if they were one of the uh, residents of the homes. Okay, so that is there on Talon's website, you can see that. Um, 
the recommendations, you know, it's a big report and people have probably haven't waded through, you know, much of it. But the key points are the recommendations. Can you just run through those quickly for us? Yes. And just if anyone is interested in reading it themselves, they can download it from www.gov.ie. But I, it comes with a health warning, Jerry, in that it's over 3,000 pages in length. So mm. it, it's quite a task for somebody to wade through that. So... In terms of the recommendations made by the report, the Commission identified that there were two main issues raised by former residents of these institutions. Now, the first one was the deficiencies in information and tracing systems, and the second one was redress for what the Commission considered to be the wrongs that were done to these women in these institutions and in society in general. Now, to start with, I'll start with the redress issue first. Now, the Commission recommended that there should be a redress scheme established, and they said it should be similar to the one that was established for the Magdalene Laundries. And it identified three groups of women who should be eligible for such redress, and I'll list them as follows. I'll go through them. One, women in the county homes who carried out unpaid work on behalf of local authorities. Two, the women in tune. And it stated that these mothers frequently left Tume several years before their children. Their children often stayed there until they were seven years of age, which meant that remaining mothers not only had to look after their own child, but to a, a large number of other children, and they should have been remunerated for that. Three, the women who worked outside these institutions without pay. But the Commission also recommended that there should be two further categories, and they are as follows. A, the women who spent lengthy periods in these homes before 1974. So, for example, the lengthy period that they mean by that is in excess of six months. And B, boarded out children. Now, these were children who were fostered, some of which who inherited property from their foster parents. Now, these foster children were not entitled to the same threshold of exemption to inheritance tax that biological children had. So when they inherited often farms, uh, they had to pay high inheritance tax. The Commission is of the view that there should be an ex gratia payment made to these people to compensate them for those taxes. Okay, so you're not talking there at all about babies born in the homes, those uh, who are adults at this stage, they don't come under this? In what sense, Jerry, are you... You know, you know that there are people we've spoken to have been deeply affected that were born there, never knew their families, things like that. Children of these women, no, they don't come under it. They do if they were boarded out children. The book okay, boarded out. section that deals with it. Boarded out children meant children who were fostered out to okay. families outside the home. I have you now. Thanks indeed for clarifying that. So what's happening now since the uh, findings have been published? Okay, the government has committed to implementing the recommendations of the report and to setting up a redress scheme by April the 30th to compensate the survivors of these institutions. Now, the categories that the Commission has identified for redress, as you can see from what I've read out to you, is very narrow. It's excluding women who were in these institutions post-1974. Now, the reason for that is that that is when the unmarried mother's allowance came into being. And further, despite the Commission hearing oral evidence from survivors that the adoptions were what we would term forced adoptions, 
the Commission didn't seem to accept that testimony and was of the view that these adoptions were not forced adoptions and therefore these particular women had no recourse to redress under the scheme that they were recommending. Now, mm. something positive is that Minister Roderick O'Gorman on News Talk on the 17th of January stated he accepted the testimony of these women and he did believe that the adoptions were forced. And there's also some positive uh, vibes coming as well from government in that uh, the minister in the journal on the 18th of January said that they wouldn't restrict themselves to these three narrow categories. So there might be hope that they might include the women post-1974 or might establish a category for forced adoptions. But unfortunately, until the legislation is published, we won't know. Okay. Uh, now let's get on to some of the nitty-gritty. Financial compensation. Does Orla want to come in on this one or will you take it, Deirdre? Well, I'll take it to this point. Orla has, has her bit towards the end and we'll okay. in, a, in her expertise. So the Commission has said that uh, it wants a scheme similar to the Magdalen Laundry scheme. Now to explain what happened with the Magdalen Laundry scheme, they provided for a general payment and a work payment, both of which were related to the length of time the person stayed in the institution. So I'll run through it quickly. If you were there for three months, it was 10,000 with a work payment of 1,500. One year, 14,500 with a work payment of 6,000. 18 months, 17,500 with a work payment of 9,000. Two years, 20,500 with a work payment of 12,000. Now, I say to your listeners, don't assume that that's what's going to happen with this redress scheme. We don't know how they're going to calculate it. And until the legislation is published, we won't know. Okay, so that's uh, the figures that you have based on past experience. But let's see what unfolds over the coming weeks and months. Now, you, you referred earlier to the other main recommendation uh, of information and tracing. Is Orla going to tell us about that? I can. I don't mind. Yes, yeah. Orla will yeah. take over. Yeah. So I suppose adopted people do not. Hi, Jerry. How are you? How are you doing? Um, good, to good to hear you from you as well. Um, adopted people, I suppose, don't have a right to access their original birth cert, nor do they have a right to access the information on their family origin. And survivors naturally see this as a fundamental human right. Um, the Commission did consider whether that should be such a right, and they believed at the time of publishing the report that a constitutional amendment would be required to allow um, adopted people access this information. Um, there were attempts to previously legislate in this area, but they were unsuccessful. Um, and there, was, there were concerns that it would be unconstitutional in that it would contravene the privacy rights of the birth mother. But the tone has changed and the newspaper reports at the moment seem to say that the present Attorney General, Paul Gallagher, has indicated that it does not require a constitutional amendment and that an approach based on EU law, i.e. GDPR, could be the basis of a new legislation in this area. Good. And and uh, before we finish up, what should listeners do today if they're survivors of the institutions or uh, children involved? Well, I suppose the starting point we'd say is to get your get your full history together. I suppose because um, if if you're to contact a solicitor to discuss it, they will need to hear your history to understand and advise you appropriately. Um, we ourselves have developed a kind of a specific process for these cases and we've developed a very a questionnaire 
that is very sensitive to the issues in this case uh, and, to the, and to the pain and suffering people might, might have. And um, this, this questionnaire is based on a review of the report and their experience um, in redress schemes and also in litigation against the state bodies. Um, I'm not sure if you remember back in the 1990s, Sheila and Deirdre took an action, a high court action on behalf of 1,800 women against the Department of Social Welfare. It was to do with inequality of uh, social welfare benefits. Um, so we have a good deal of experience on that and we're building on that experience. Um, another thing that we're doing is we're encouraging all our clients to access their information now that, that, that is held in the institutions or were held for the institutions. And we're doing this um, via GDPR, which is, as you know, a request for information of the data protection legislation, because we think it's going to take some time to get all the information together. So we would urge people to basically contact, to contact their solicitor, get their history together, so we can get the ball rolling in taking up their information and relevant documentation. Look, I have to leave it there today. Thank you both for joining me on the show. Very interesting information. And just to say to people, keep in touch with your local radio station, read up about it, but contact your solicitors as well. And Talents have all the information. Download the report, as Deirdre said there. But certainly, Talents are there to help you. Talents.ie. Orla Shevlin and Deirdre Moran, thank you so much. Thank you, Jerry. Take care. Bye-bye. That's uh, talent they're giving advice to. Uh, if you're somebody who is affected by the report, if you are a child or a mother who was there, you need to now uh, start making inquiries and get uh, uh, working on your own behalf and uh, contact your local solicitor as well. Very, very important. Late Lunch LMFM Radio. Stay with us on this special day. Yes, this very special day. Joe Biden will be inaugurated as President of the United States. And we're going to be talking to John Shannon uh, about it after three o'clock on the show. Do you remember? I don't know whether you remember this before we break. I'll mention it to you anyway. I think it was the Christmas before last. I'm sure, nearly sure it was. 2019 Christmas breakfast. I think I told you I opened a tin of beans and there wasn't a bean in the tin. It was all sauce. Well, Miriam, my other half, said to me last night, she showed me a tin she opened and here it was again. Another tin of bachelor's beans with only sauce in it. And you know what she said to me? She said to me, that's about the third tin of those beans I've opened in the last couple of months where there's been none or damn all beans in the tin. Anybody else experienced that? No beans in the bachelor's beans, just the sauce. Let me know. The contact number is 086-1800-658 is the WhatsApp or text number to get in touch with me on the show. Or if you'd like to call in, it's 1850-715-958. The Boss. Springsteen, yes, it's US music all the way this afternoon on late lunch to coincide with the inauguration later this afternoon, around midday or just after in the States of Joe Biden as the 46th president of the United States. Our Louise, she's too sharp altogether. She really is. Yes, she said the trouble with you and beans, Jerry, is no one has a bean because of COVID. <laughs> Beans in the tin, you are too sharp, our Louise Walsh. There's another one there that says to me, Jerry, yes, is Eamon, all them bachelors got married now. They don't have a bean in their pocket. <laughs> thank you, Eamon. And that's a serious one. Uh, thank you, whoever you are. Yes, Jerry, I opened one of the small tins of beans last week. And honestly, there was only about six beans in the tin. The rest was sauce. Never saw that before. Well, I did see it 
Christmas before last, on Christmas morning, disaster, not a bean in the tin, only the juice. Lucky we had a backup. Um, but uh, Miriam was saying to me, uh, this is about the third tin she's uh, come across in a couple of months, that there's been no beans in the bachelor's tins. What's going on, bachelors? We'll have to get onto this. We rang them before and they really just dismissed us. They didn't want to know. Do you remember Beanie and Barney, the two boys? Bachelors, bachelors. Do you remember the two boys and the TV ad many moons ago? They were a great uh, pair and were well known and all over the place on TV, radio and billboards as well. Anyway, if you're having trouble with your beans, let me know. Just wanted to mention something to you as well. Um, I live on the north side of Drogheda and there's a new bus route running out to this new town that's been built out here. This new town on the north side of Drogheda, Loud County Council. Houses, houses everywhere. Where are the facilities? Where are the sporting facilities? Where are the roads to get in and out? Don't get me on my soapbox about this one. Creating a monster on the north side of Drogheda with no thought or planning for facilities, people, what people are going to do, where there'll be recreation, how people are going to get in and out on this little country road. It's a scandal, I have to say. And uh, I say when I get the chance today to our local politicians, come down to Ballamakenny and have a look what's going on down here, what you're creating, and the lack of planning and thought that's going in. It's shocking, I have to say. Anyway, that's my soapbox for today. Back uh, to something I noticed. There's a bus, new bus route running, uh, town bus service out this way now with a view to more people living here, thousands more living here. And I was driving, it was either Saturday or Sunday morning going to get my weekly shopping, probably was the Saturday, and a bus driver passed me. This is no joke. And he was on his mobile phone and he didn't see me or the road or anything else. He was driving along, not going too fast, but at a decent speed, staring into his phone, not looking at the road. Now, we've mentioned this before in general about texting or talking on phones without hands-free or that, but a bus driver? Is a bus driver entitled to use his mobile phone when he's driving the bus? Or should he, like anybody else, pull in and use it then? I'd like to know. But I got a little bit of a start when I saw He never saw me. He passed me by and he was staring into the mobile phone. He probably knows the road well at this stage. But I don't think that's on. What do you think? If you have an opinion, let me know. 086-1800-658. WhatsApp or text me to the show. Or you can call in on 1850-715-958. Up next, she is a debut author. But her first novel, wow. Has it hit the headlines? Stay with us on Late Lunch to hear more. Listen to this for praise for a debut novel. Liz Nugent, I didn't put it down until I turned the final page. Joe Spain, pacey, clever and tense. Sam Blake, gripping and unpredictable. My heart is still pounding after reading it. And eerie and unsettling, says Catherine Ride Howard. And I've interviewed all of those wonderful authors in my time. And I think I'll be interviewing my next guest, who's been so patient waiting on the line in the future. She's the author of Hidden Lies. Rachel Ryan, welcome to Late Lunch. Thanks so much for having me, Jerry. Not at all. Well, what does it mean to you when you see that feedback or you read it from those wonderful established authors? Oh, it's absolutely surreal. You know, um, I was totally unpublished when my agent picked me up. I was working as a childminder. I was writing at night. It was all very much a pipe dream. So to see that kind of praise for Hidden Lies from people like Liz Nugent is just I still have to pinch myself all the time. 
<laughs> it's a great story. It really is. But to hit the ground running, so to speak, uh, with this book is amazing. And not alone those wonderful people. I've been looking at others who've read it and you're on their list now for sure for the future. But you've written candidly in recent times and spoken about this, that this has been a tough old station for you to get where you are now. Yeah, I think it takes most people quite a long time to get to the stage where um, their their writing is ready, you know. Um, and ultimately, I think that's a kind of a good thing because the long wait was time for me to get better and better at writing stories, simply put. And um, I'm really, really happy now that I'm at a stage where I feel like my debut novel, obviously it's been received quite well, which is absolutely lovely. And I think that it wouldn't have received that reception if I hadn't. You know, had so many years of practice and work to this point. Um, so, like, when readers get back to me and tell me that they enjoyed Hidden Lives, I'm just, like, all all the rejection and all the years of being unpublished and unknown are so worth it for that reward. Ah, that's lovely to hear. Look, this book, and, and uh, again, the, the putting of it together has taken some time. I, I'm curious, the first part of it, you say, came to you very easily indeed. Mm-hmm. Uh, you were, uh, what, out late one evening or coming home one night and it came to you just like that? Yes, yes, I was walking home and I, I saw the first scene pop into my head and I knew I had to write the story. So home you went, you write this down and you're away. But then it takes time to shape the book. And I know and I know it from radio and the work I've done here over the years. Mm-hmm. This word called editing is <laughs> something else. I'm sure you can verify that now. Yes. So I, I wrote Hidden Lives. I wrote the first draft of Hidden Lives. Um, it wasn't called Hidden Lives then. It didn't even have a name. It was just a story in my head. And I saw like a little boy and he had an imaginary friend and... Um, his mother was under a lot of stress and I saw the whole thing um, come together as as the opening chapters. And I, I also knew where the story was going to go and what the big twist would be. So, But it was just me and the story. And, and then when I was lucky enough to get signed by my wonderful agent and um, get a publishing deal and um, all my dreams came true, you know, that's when the real work starts. Then I had to start editing. So, yes, it was it was a difficult process and it was an amazing learning curve for me. Um, I, you know, learned so much through that process and I'm so grateful for it because even though it was really hard work, I think that that's what makes the book so readable and, and, you know, so concise. So you were learning as you went along and you were, uh, of course, mm-hmm. uh, benefiting from the experience of others. Are you possessive about your your words? Were you, were you, was it a battle? Did you want to hold on to things and then did you see the light of day? You know what I'm talking about as people yeah. talk to you through why you should make the changes. I know exactly what you're talking about and it's a great question. And I'm sure there are people listening who write. Um, and if you are any kind of writer, it's the big struggle. You show your work to someone and and you want feedback and then they tell you what's wrong and you think, you just don't understand me. That's, that's exactly what I meant to do. I think that's a very natural sort of resistance. Um, and I think it's really normal for people to, to experience some form of resistance. Um, so what I think anyone should do if they're taking feedback on any kind of piece of creative work is let, it, let the advice settle for a few days. Like don't respond straight away because for me, when I look at my editor's notes, I think it looks like a lot of work and you just kind of resist it. And then I go away and I think about it for a few days. And I come back to the page and I find myself thinking, she's right about pretty much everything. 
<laughs> but you need that um, time to let it settle and to let your ego get out of the way. It's so true. And uh, the other voice, the uh, the experience in that is so vital and it really has fed its way into this brilliant book. Um, seven-year-old Cody um, mm-hmm. has a new friend, a new granny, he, he says, you know, in, in the park that he's come up with. The mum, Georgina, is not convinced. His dad, Bren, is a little bit, you know, indifferent to it. And I don't want to give too much away. And so the story unfolds. Is the friend real or imaginary? Did your work with childcare, did you pull from that? Definitely. Um, and I think that working in childcare was so helpful to me and so useful to me um, for two reasons. One was when I was writing Hidden Lies, I had, you know, my, my day-to-day was looking after kids. So it really helped me to get into like the rhythms of domestic life and, you know, laundry and, and um, like the kind of relentless chores and just that day-to-day of what it means to look after kids um, definitely found its way into the fabric of the novel. So I couldn't have written Hidden Lies if I wasn't working as a childminder. And also, I think that working as a childminder is a great job if you're an aspiring writer because you're on your feet all day, which makes it easy to sit down at your computer in the evening and write. Like I think if I'd been at a desk for eight hours a day, it would have been quite hard to sit down at a desk again in the evening. So in a way, I think having such a sort of active, physically tiring job was quite beneficial to me. How did you maintain the suspense right through? You know, the suspense in books, it comes and goes. But, you know, this book holds you right through from start to finish. It's an amazing thing. It's an amazing talent you have. Thank you so much, Sherry. Um, Well, my amazing editors really helped me with that. Um, I couldn't have got it to the standard it's at without their help. Um, and in terms of my technique, I I just really don't ever want my readers to be bored. So like when I was writing Hidden Lies at every chapter, I think I want the reader to have something that's keeping them turning the pages. So I'm very cognizant of that. And I'm always thinking, you know, if one small mystery has been solved, you need to introduce another one right before that so that there's something to keep the reader compelled. Um, so that's always what I'm striving towards and what I hope I've achieved with Hidden Lies. Oh, you have by the bucketful, and you've set the bar so high. This is the thing now. You you know, the first one has been received so well, and it's going to fly, and it is flying at the moment. What about the deal? Have you signed for more than one? Yes, I've signed a two-book deal with Little Brown in the UK. Um, and so it's it's quite surreal and overwhelming, Um uh, but in my, I suppose I try to p- take the perspective of life is long and I've always written stories, you know, even when I was a little kid. So I imagine I'll be writing them right up to until I'm an old woman. So I'll have lots of time to um, write more novels <laughs> and hopefully get back to the, the level that this is being received at, which has been, you know, just absolutely lovely. And, and I'm, I'm just mm. delighted. Have you left the day job behind? Now, I don't mean to you know, say it in a fashion that you might be thinking or others, but will you continue to work and, you know, write on the side? Is And, and is that your hope that for one day it will just be the writing? My intention was originally to um, keep childminding and write because I was just so used to doing that. You know, I'd always done it. I'd always child, been working with kids during the day and then come home in the evenings and written and that was my rhythm. Um, and I thought, well, if I can write Hidden Lies that way, I'm sure I can write the second one that way. But then pandemic happened and um, 
So I didn't go back yeah. to childminding because of mm. the uh, because of COVID. Um, so I left the day job almost by accident. <laughs> um, so at the moment, I am writing full time. But I, I have, again, life is long. I don't know what the future holds. But at the moment, it's a great privilege. And it frees me up to do things like this during the day and chat to people like you, which is really fun part of the job. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. You've made my day with those few words, I have to say. It's not often you get a compliment like that. But look, you know, w- when I look at your story, you have to be an inspiration and an encouragement to others as well, because, you know, most people get into a job or into a career and away they go. You're quite different. And you probably look at your friends and think, mm, did you ever think that at times? You know, look at them. They're getting, you know, the paid regularly. I know you did the child mind and that. You know what I'm talking about? That, you know, of the artist, of the writer, the uh, insecurity, the not knowing the future. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Definitely. I definitely think that was a big part of my early 20s. And I got over it. But it took me a bit of time to get over it. And I definitely had times where I thought to myself, maybe this writing thing isn't going to work out. You know, maybe I'll never sell a book. Maybe I should retrain as something sensible. Um, and I, I really did look at my friends who had followed more traditional career paths and compare myself to them. But I mean, I know it's such yeah. a cliche, but it's so true. Like you just make yourself unhappy comparing yourself to other people. And mm. I just kind of gave myself a kick up the bum one day and I was like, just stop it. You know, like you decided to follow writing because you love books and you love telling stories. And you have to just trust that one day it'll work out for you and you have to stop feeling sorry for yourself. And I mean, that sounds silly, but it really did work. I, I kind of got over it before I was signed by my agent. And I think that was for the best because waiting for Hidden Lies to come out was very was quite a terrifying time in my life. But um, I'd, I'd already gotten used to giving myself these kind of tough love pep talks. So I said, you know, I was able to say to myself, right, the book is coming out now and I really hope it's received well. But if it isn't, I'll get over it because I'm not I'm not going to sit here and feeling sorry for myself. Um, so obviously the book has been well received and that's such a relief. But um, I think that those experiences of maybe um, having to learn not to do too much comparison with other people in my early 20s actually kind of served me when the book was coming out. So it's been a whole big journey full of um, full of learning about uh, persistence and just kind of keeping going and not wasting your time comparing yourself to other people because it just only makes you unhappy. It's a waste of time. You are so right. They are very wise words. Well, look, this book is a cracker. And I say to people, if you want a a thriller to be in suspense from first to last page with a wonderful twist, with a great story in there, Hidden Lies, the debut novel from Rachel Ryan is the one for you. And I will be mentioning you again and the book in our book club uh, later in the month with Margaret Madden, because I love this book and you have a real talent. Good luck to you with the second one. And thank you for joining me with Bookshops Not Open. It's available online, I take it, Rachel. Yes, it's available from Easton's and all good bookshops. And you can order it as well. I know bookshops, some are functioning in the background there. You can order it mm-hmm. and organise to get it to you. You'll enjoy it. It's a great read for the start of a new year. Thank you for your patience. Thank you for joining me today. Look forward to talking to you again when book number two arrives. Thanks for having me, Jerry. Bye-bye. Not at all. Take care. That's the wonderful Rachel Ryan there. The book again, just to remind you, is Hidden Lies. Listen to this. Lucky you, Jerry Kelly. I can't afford to buy bachelor's beans. God, I didn't realise they were that expensive, to be honest with you. So don't know. I can't tell you how many beans are or aren't in the tin. I actually go with the Aldi beans and they're full every time and only cost 
19 cent. There you go. I must get a tin and try them and do a taste. I'm going to have to do a taste on these beans now. I'm going to do a taster on these beans. This is now set me with a thought. I'm going to get the bachelors. I love Heinz as well. Actually, Heinz are my favourite. Herself loves the bachelors. I love Heinz more than anything else. I'm going to have to get a few of these tins now and taste them and uh, give you my opinion on them. Thank you for your messages. Keep them coming to us. 086-1800-658 by WhatsApp or text. Up next on the show, from beans to spuds. Thank you, Matty, for getting in touch with me on late lunch today. Listen to this. Matty bought a four-pack of bachelors beans. You know, they come in multi-packs. There wasn't a bean in any of the tins. Just all sauce. What's going on with Bachelor's Beans? He got in touch with Bachelor's and they sent him out a voucher for a replacement four-pack. Well, I know where Louise chased the no beans in the tin for us and had no joy. Well done to you, Matty. I hope the uh, replacements are full of beans. There's another listener on to me. Oh, Jerry, you can't beat the Dunn Store's own brand beans. At 25 cent, you're dearer than Aldi. They're 19 and Aldi, 19 cent, another listener told me. They're fantastic. They're my favourite. You should try them. Now I am. Now I'm on, on, I'm on the bean path here. Uh, Beanie and Barney, I'm uh, Beanie on this one. I'm on the bean path. I'm going to get beans now, I promise you. I'm going to buy tins all round, own brands, etc. And I'm going to do the taste challenge here on late lunch. That's a promise. I'm going to do that. Keep your beans or no beans story coming to us. 086-1800-658 WhatsApp or text from beans to spuds and what spuds we're talking about. Yes, Maria Flynn from Ballamakenny Farm is on the on the line. Hello, Maria. Hi, Jerry. How are you? Well, before we talk spuds, beans, yeah. do you have any preference for beans? What um, brand? Or can you... for me. Yeah, there you go. bachelor's. Bachelor's beans. Did you ever open a tin with no beans in them? What we're talking about here, just sauce? No, Jerry. No. Maybe there it's some kind <laughs> of, maybe it's some kind of lottery they're doing. Do you know what I mean? If you, if you contact <laughs> them and you've no beans. Do you know what I mean? No. <laughs> You could be onto something here. There could be something strange going on. Anyway, it spuds with you. Oh, my God, I'm ringing you because you really uh, hit the big time. I just <laughs> saw you in Saturday's Irish Times and them waxing <laughs> lyrical. <laughs> oh, you're hot stuff in Ballamakenny for sure. Listen, tell me this. Is the shack still operating? Oh, yeah. Yeah, we, we couldn't be without it, Jerry. It's, uh, it's phenomenal. Mm. Yeah, really, really good on a lot of levels. Cash flow is obviously important for any business, but also uh, the customers drive in. You know, they have their masks on and we put the potatoes, whatever, into the booth. So it's it's safe. It's it's OK. And it's nice to have what little of interaction with people I can have because a lot of people don't have any, you know. So um, mm, mm. a lot of ways it's it's become a little happy place for me. Definitely. Yeah, I love it. Mm. Uh, rumour has it you had to um, you could have actually been employed in Washington today for crowd control rumour has it one day you arrived because I know you're open in the afternoons and you had to uh, implement the COVID restrictions there were so many people waiting for you is that a rumour or is it fact? No that's true Jerry. true true story sometimes I go over and there's four or five cars there and I'm always thinking (laughs) is it me they want (laughs) I'm always thinking you know you know, do they think it's something else? I don't know. The confidence is never really there with me, and it should be at this stage. But, um, you know, it, it just always amazes me that people come to the garden shed to buy our potatoes. I, I just, mm. it's never, it's been six years, and it's just every day, it's, you know, I get excitement out of it. Every customer that comes in because they heard about our potatoes, you know, it, it, 
it really, I don't know, I don't know how to describe it, Jerry. It's just such a good feeling. It really, really, really well, is. I feel we don't deserve it or something, you know what I mean? I, don't, I can't ah, put no. my finger on it, Jerry. I just can't. But, um, no, from the first day, I, from the first day I met you, and I was with you. You were with me six years ago when this ago, concept yeah. was. You know, uh, you said to us, "This is what we're going to do. We're going to turn around this farm. We're going to grow heritage yeah. stuff. We're going to, yeah. you know, do it in a certain way." And yeah. and here you are, these six years on. Tell the listeners at the minute what's good in spuds. What 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 are you what are you recommending for uh, for uh, spud lovers? <laughs> We have discovered, um, it's new to us, but obviously not new varieties. I think you, you've certainly heard of them before, the Mayan varieties from the Mayans oh. in, in Peru. And they really are some tasty, tasty potatoes. Uh, we had one, it, it actually ran out at Christmas. It was our biggest seller called Mayan Gold. Possibly, mm. possibly one of the nicest potatoes I've ever had. Our, our customers certainly loved it. Um, we've run out of them. Uh, but we do have a potato uh, of the same family. So Mayan Gold would be one of its parents. It's called Mayan Rose. And people kind of switched. The, the fans of the Mayan Gold have switched to the Mayan Rose. Do you know what I mean? Um, yeah. So we have our lovely Pink for Apple. The Pink for Apple, when our, when our chefs are up and running and when the business is doing the business with the restaurants, it's by far our most popular potato. But I find it's our least popular with the public. Um, I think mm. that's to do with the texture, not the taste, because it's quite waxy. And as a nation, yeah, oh. uh, the majority of us like a bit of flowery, I think, you know. <laughs> well, I'm out of step on this one. I, and I told you this before, I'm a yeah. big fan of a waxy potato. I really yeah. am. I love them. They're my, they're my favourites. But you're right, the Irish palate seems to lean towards the more yeah. flowery potato. Yeah. And look, at yeah. that's what, uh, what the market dictates. Besides spuds, anything else? You, you have other fresh produce as well. I know spuds is your mainstay, but you do more than yeah. that, don't you? Well, we, have, we, we generally do a couple of veg in the summer and one in the winter. Our winter veg this season is a thing called frivoli. And it's a hybrid between a purple Brussels sprout and a kale. You've you've been in our in our Frivoli field over the year, years before. Yes. You walked through it one year with me. They grow like Brussels sprouts on stalks. And you get this mm. lovely curly kale at the top of the plant. And a lot of customers are coming in, they've never heard of it, but they're great for trying it. Do you know what I mean? And those that try it yeah. generally come back. They love it. Yeah, they re- you can eat it raw, really lovely peppery taste raw. If if you think of a Brussels mm. sprout and think that size but it has lovely frilled yes. leaves on it that flower out. They're actually called flowering sprouts. And uh, they're, they're very good in the pan with a bit of butter, I have to say. Mm. <laughs> and it's your greens. You're getting fantastic greens with all the vitamins and minerals and everything that's uh, that's yeah. involved. Yeah. yeah, there as well. So listen, what are you doing? We've all our seed in ready for when the springtime comes. So we'll have our tender, uh, the, the long stem broccoli back, which is like tender stem broccoli. That was really popular at the shack last year. Uh, the customers really got behind. It's so fresh, you see. You know, they just love mm. the freshness of it. And we're going to do a purple sprout and broccoli for the winter um, this year. Right. So you're, you're, you're always planning ahead, as you know. Even in, in gardens, any gardener will know you're planning ahead all of the time. But we're going to give some rainbow carrots a go. Now, this will just be for the bud shack customers. We're not doing these on the commercial uh, scale. Um, so we'll have lovely red and yellow uh, carrots yes. and things like that. Fantastic. So, we'll that so there's lots of new innovations for the year ahead. Maria, listen, we wish you well. I just wanted to touch base. The shack is opened at Bala McKenney. Keep it up is. the growing and the wonderful work and good luck to you for the new season. We'll be in touch.
Thanks for ringing, Jerry. Appreciate it. Not at all. You're very welcome. The wonderful Maria Flynn there from Ballamackenny Farm. Jerry, I remember a survey being done some years ago by a Dublin company, and bachelor's beans came out tops with more beans for your money and less sauce than the other brands. A lot more. Who had a lot more sauce? There you are. The bean story rolls on. News, weather and sport at three next. Oh, you're fantastic people. You really are. The amount of messages I've got about the beans. Here's just some of them. Jerry, you've got to go for the sugar-free beans in Aldi. I love them. They're fantastic. Thank you. I agree with that other texter earlier, Jerry, says another listener. Dunn's Beans. They're fantastic. That comes in from Ursula in Dundalk. Try them, Jerry. she says. Gary's been on from Navin to say he bought a, a tin of Heinz beans and there were no beans in the tin, just the sauce. Oh, there you are. So it afflicts Heinz in a way as well. Maybe not as much as Bachelors. But Gary goes on to say, I contacted Heinz by email and they sent me out a two euro voucher and I bought Four tins of Heinz beans. Well done. Heinz are my favourite, I have to say at the minute. I love the Heinz beans. Uh, Paula. <laughs> Good on you, Paula. I love your humour. Paula says, should be a fun evening in your home, Jerry, when you taste all those beans. <laughs> beans, beans, the more you eat, the more you sit in the toilet seats. And that what they say about the old beans. Anyway, I'm going to get the beans and I am going to taste them. I promise you that. And I'm a man of my word. Our featured artists on Late Lunch all this week are the Carpenters. I mentioned Karen yesterday, who died all too young. Richard, you know, is 74. Yeah, he's 74 at the moment. And he married... An adopted cousin of his. No relation, no blood relation whatsoever. He married Mary Rudolph. And they have five children, four girls and a boy. And it's great that one of the girls is called Mindy Karen after her late aunt, Karen Carpenter. And the children perform with dad from time to time at Carpenter's events. And they're still big things. They are in the States still. Oh, my God, they are so popular. So today, remembering the Carpenters, I'm going back to their album, A Song For You, which was released in 1972. And this song was never intended as a single. And yet it made number one in the USA Billboard 100 for two weeks in 1973. Yes, for Mr. Joe Biden. He has to be feeling like this today, hasn't he? Joe, top of the world. Ah, I'm singing and tapping along with that song here. It's very true. Eamon was just saying to me there, timeless. When you have a song like that with a hookah that just catches you, just gets you every time. And that uh, is brilliant there. What a voice Karen Carpenter had. Oh, just truly unique. Absolutely brilliant. And again, I say she was taken from us all too young. But what a repertoire of songs and music she's left behind. And that'll be played in many, many years to come after we are all gone. I promise you, because it is just such a lovely lovely, lovely song. Another one from the Carpenters tomorrow afternoon. Well, we're getting closer and closer. As soon as I'm finished here, I'm going to settle in for the evening and watch the inauguration live from Washington. And uh, I'm looking forward to it. I really am. Well, after our final break this Wednesday afternoon, a man has been with us. He's been living in the Northeast for a time. He went back to visit family in Texas. He's been stuck there since earlier in the year. And he campaigned for Biden. John Shanahan is with us next. Before we say hello to John M. Shanahan, he's in Houston, Texas. Let's have a listen to what the world won't be hearing after today. One thing I can promise you this. I will always tell you the truth. The crowd was massive. That was all the way back down to the Washington Monument. It looked like a million, a million and a half people. I get this network. And it showed an empty field. 
And it said we drew 250,000 people. Now that's not bad, but it's a lie. This was the largest audience to ever witness an inauguration, period. Sean Spicer, our press secretary, gave alternative facts to that. We built the greatest economy in the history of the world. Best unemployment numbers, best everything. And I gave you the biggest tax cut in the history of our country. You know, the wall is being built and we're doing 10 miles, 10 miles a week. It'll be completed very soon. And Mexico is paying for the wall, by the way. We won Georgia easily. We won it by hundreds of thousands of votes. Actually, I won Wisconsin. We will win this, and we, as far as I'm concerned, we already have won it. I was the most transparent and am. You know, some of the most dishonest people in media are the so-called fact-checkers. No religion, no anything. Hurt the Bible, hurt God. This is going to go away without a vaccine. It's going to go away, and it's uh, we're not going to see it again. Because if I'm a little bit off, they call me a liar. They'll say he gets a Pinocchio, the stupid Washington Post. Oh, boy, these people are bad. What a group of people we have. What a group of dishonest scum we have, I'm telling you. So many lies, so many fabrications, so much exaggeration. John Shanahan, we're going to miss him so much, John. <laughs> Good morning. Good morning in the United States, Jerry. My God, you ta- you forced me to take to the strong drink already. <laughs> John, my, oh my, he's uh, gone and in his wake he leaves a White House and uh, a country with a lot to be done for the la- what's happened uh, over the last four years. Look, he's... He's issued a lot of pardons uh, in the last 24 hours. One in particular, Steve Bannon, one of his advisors, he's pardoned. What does a pardon mean, John? Well, in, under the United States Constitution, the president has plenary power to uh, pardon an individual, which means that um, if he has been found guilty, the guilty, uh, the, the finding of the court is removed. If he is in jail, he's released. If he's uh, under investigation, the investigation stops. If he is uh, pending trial, the whole proceeding stops. It's essentially the uh, the legal equivalent of a plenary indulgence, Gary. But, uh, John, it is the remit of departing presidents to do this, and others have. You know, Obama's done it to Clinton. They've all, they've all issued pardons. He'll say, well, look, at I'm only doing what the rest of them did. Not at all. Not at all, indeed, because uh, the, the pardon, the concept of a pardon derives from the absolute, uh, is derived from the absolute power of a monarch. And when the founders wrote the Constitution, they had uh, the powers of monarchs very much in mind. Uh, King George and the Tea Party, uh, from which the American Republic sprang, was very much on their minds as well. And while they were certainly interested in getting rid of a monarchy, and George Washington made it, made it plain that he would have no parts of being a king, uh, they were very mindful of the, if you will, the absolute power of the king to dispense from crimes of various sorts. And so that intrigued the founders, and they decided to keep this pardon uh, power in place. And, and honestly, and particularly in Obama's case, it was a very good thing because as, as we have in any system, we have, we have people who are unjustly punished, who are put in, put in jail for long periods of time for really petty crimes. And a good example of that has been in the state of New York, 
we have the so-called Rockefeller drug laws, which provided for mandatory sentences to prison and mandatory minimum sentences so that they would have to serve a specific period of time uh, that was, in fact, far above what was uh, what was proportional to the crime committed. And so what Obama did, and remember that Obama is a, is a, is a scholar in constitutional law. He's been, before he was a president and a senator, he was a professor of constitutional law. And what he did very correctly was he said to the American Justice Department, do the things that you are set up to do, review these cases, and after you have screened them, bring them to me and let me see them for pardons. And so they did that. Now, go back and going back to um, uh, Trump, Trump would have circumvented that entire procedure. He ignored his Justice Department, uh, aligned up a whole crowd of felons, uh, many of whom were, were richly deserving of the jail sentences that they had or were about to get in the case of Mr. Bannon and just simply pardoned a lot of them. Mm. So it's succinctly and uh, uh, really, in reality, quite different. Now, look, let's forget about him. He's on his way out. He's going to Mar-a-Lago and he's going to become a private citizen from uh, midday, your time there. I watched Joe Biden last night live on the Mall with Kamala Harris and that mm-hmm. ceremony to remember. And I'll say this again, the 400,000 and rising U.S. citizens that have died because of coronavirus. And they remembered all the people who've died around the world as well. It was touching, John. Well, it certainly was. And Joe Biden and Kamala Harris are bringing a sense of civility and decency uh, back to Washington, something that we have, we've, we've, we've missed very much. As you know, I lived and worked in Washington for a number of years uh, as an executive with the American government. And, uh, you know, there was always a sense even on both sides of the political aisle, always a sense of decency uh, toward one another. That was, of course, entirely lost under uh, under the uh, Trump years. And uh, so now we're seeing that return and in a very welcome way. John, the whole issue of trying to bring 70 plus million people who have voted for Trump, you know, to your way of thinking. And I'm not saying to brainwash anybody, but to get them to understand what's fact from fiction. This, besides coronavirus, the economy, world relations, everything else, jobs, unemployment that goes with it. This is a huge task to be undertaken. Can it be done, John? Well, Jerry, it can, I think, uh, but it will take time. Um, what's, what's happened is essentially uh, the old story of the Pied Piper. Um, the, um, the fool appears on the scene, tells people what they want to hear, feeds their prejudices and their ignorances, and uh, they begin to, to, to rally around him. And Donald, uh, George, uh, I'm sorry, Donald Trump managed to do that very handily through the use of a new form of electronic media new to American presidents, and that was Twitter. Um, and uh, frankly, the owners of Twitter did us a great service when after the terrible events at the national capital on the 6th of January, they cut off Donald Trump's account. We've had silence from him since the 6th of January. And I have to tell you, it is a wonderful and refreshing thing. And what it may force people to do, and I, I, I'm afraid I'll feel a uh, sound a bit old-fashioned here. It may force people to read and to critically think. And I, if, I, if I hear the sound of school teachers all across the northeast of Ireland cheering at this point, 
Uh, I would not be surprised. That's, of course, what they tried to tell the young ones in the classroom. Read, read widely, read carefully, think critically before you accept anything as a matter of fact. And that's the kind of thing we're going to have to do here in the United States. John, well said. I'm going to let you away. Like ourselves, I'm going to finish here and watch the inauguration. It is a great day. And I wish him and Kamala Harris and everybody in the States all the very best. A new beginning today. Thank you so much for joining me, John, during the course of this unprecedented time in your homeland. It's a wonderful time here, Jerry. Thank you very much for the courtesy. It's a. It's been a real touch of Ireland, I have to say, this morning. Uh, we had <laughs> Irish music and poetry at the Mass this morning. And uh, Ireland should feel very much at home with this gentleman. Thank you, John, and take care of yourself. We will be in touch soon. That's the wonderful John M. Shanahan there. And we leave you with this one today for the Donald. We played one for Joe earlier. This is for Donald. Tomorrow on the show, Suzanne Lynch live from Washington and Alwyn Moran. The whole family have gone vegetarian and more besides on late lunch. Anyway, have a nice evening. I'm going to go and enjoy the inauguration and say goodbye to the Donald. See you tomorrow. Oh, woman, oh, woman, oh, treat me so mean. You're the meanest old woman that I've ever seen. I guess if you say so, I'll have to pack my things and go. That's right, hit the road, Jack. Me this away, cause I'll be back on my feet someday. Don't care if you call this understood. You ain't got no money, you just ain't no good. Well, I guess if you say so, I'll have to pack my things and go. That's right, hit the road, Jack. And don't you come back no more, no more, no more, no more. Hit the road, Jack. And don't you come back no more. What you say? The Late Lunch with Blackstone Motors, Drahada Dundalk and Cavan. Our service departments are open with all HSC and government guidelines in place to keep you and our staff safe. Sales are click and deliver only through our website, blackstonemotors.ie. Stay safe from Blackstone Motors. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. 
Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.